New South, Old Politics, 1956. Few areas in the world are witnessing such a drastic and far-reaching transformation as is underway in the South today. American industry in its flight from outmoded methods, uneconomical plants, and stultifying industrial traditions in the North and East is migrating to the South on a large scale. The transition of the South from a culture and economy basically agrarian to urban industrialization has acquired the dimension of a revolution. Between 1940 and 1950, two million white workers were added to Southern industry. During the same period, over three million Negro workers quit the South, thus turning the problem of race relations from a sectional to a national one. In 10 years, the number of Negroes outside the South rose 60%. The really significant development, however, is that over one third of poor white and Negro labor has moved from farms to cities. Cotton, oil, chemicals, and textiles have created a new economy and a new urban middle class. Yet despite this economic transformation, the South has clung to its old agrarian and feudal attitudes and sought to incorporate them in the new emerging industrial society. The confusing and frustrating major party setup in this country, marked by the solid democratic South, stems largely from this Southern backwardness. Not only Negro leaders, but Southern politicians of every complexion are well aware that the South cannot play a part that makes sense in national political life so long as a one-party pattern exists. Genuine national unity of either major party will come only as the Southern vote is divided between them, or what would be more significant, between one of the old parties and a new political entity. This would, however, entail a thorough political regrouping in the entire country. The questions which now arise in every presidential election as to whether certain Southern states may go Republican, whether Southerners are well advised to support the Democratic Party nationally, or might more advantageously put up Dixiecrat candidates, and so on, reflect the South's transitional situation. The growing influence of the Republican Party in the South stems from the fact that in the struggle between Northern industry and Northern labor to extend their power in the South, industry has so far triumphed and hence has determined the nature of the rising white urban middle class. Composed of new plant managers, technicians, doctors, tradesmen, lawyers, newspaper publishers, and realtors, this middle class has assumed the role of rebel in Southern politics. Its Republican sympathies have engendered real pressure for two-party politics. Locally cornered and nationally homeless, this group's revolt against the old agrarianism may draw still other Southerners into the Republican fold. At the moment, it appears that Eisenhower may get fewer Southern votes this year than in 1952. It is unlikely, however, that the Republican Party in the country as a whole will move to the left. 
It seems, therefore, that Southern industrial and financial elements will eventually find a home in the GOP, despite memories of the war between the states. The Democratic Party, on the other hand, cannot in the long run accommodate sufficiently to the increasing conservatism of considerable sectors of its southern wing without alienating its northern following. The leaders of organized labor cannot repeatedly make the shabby compromises which they made in Chicago this year and keep their following. The Democratic Party has to remake itself radically or fall apart. The behavior of the Negro will be the determining factor in the political revamping of the South because the economic and social position of the Negro has been the foundation of the reactionary one-party system in the South. In his rise to a new status, the Negro can exert sufficient pressure to determine the nature of the new alignments. The Negro masses can break and have an immense stake in breaking the existing political pattern, which obviously is detrimental to the nation as a whole through the hold of Southern Democrats over key congressional committees and in other ways. The significance of the nonviolent protests in Montgomery and Tallahassee is thus national. The refusal of Negroes to tolerate further segregation will, if it continues to grow, decisively influence all our lives. The Negro may force the South to choose between true democratic support for social revolution and the suppression of it by a movement to the extreme right. In either case, the South will be transformed. Nationally, unless one of the major parties genuinely supports the Negro, a strong impetus will be given for a new party composed of farmers, white industrial workers, and Negroes to emerge in the South. These will be the decisive element in any new national party. In his political thinking about strategy today, the Negro must take cognizance of two dangers. The first is that the Industrial Revolution of the South may make him less important economically. It is significant that before the Second World War, Southern white businessmen sought to discourage the northward migration of Negroes. But after the war, they encouraged it. In 1940, one-fourth of the labor force was Negro. Ten years later, it had fallen off to one-fifth. Industrialization, the effect of mechanized cotton pickers and harvesters, the ease with which part-time white farmers had moved into the factories, the difficulties surrounding Negro membership in unions, and the failure to pass the Fair Employment Practices Act have tended to weaken the position of the Negroes in relation to whites. The second danger is that when the present economic boom slackens, the Negro will be the hardest hit by unemployment and will be further displaced from the land. The full effects of agricultural mechanization are yet to be seen, and it is doubtful that Southern industry will be able to absorb the rapid growth of the population even with the northward Negro migration. Under the shadow of these two dangers, the Negro people must move carefully but swiftly while the initiative is theirs, where they may discover that they and the democratic impulses for which they stand are on the defensive or even forced to retreat. Whether consciously or unconsciously, 
The response of Negro leaders in Montgomery and Tallahassee indicates their realization that to go slow is to go backwards. Considering his political course and deciding, for example, how to vote, the Negro should not lose sight of the basic weapon of nonviolent, non-cooperation and protest. It is difficult to assess the importance of a one-shot performance at the polls in November, but the tremendous effects of day-to-day nonviolent protest go on through the year. There can be no doubts about the profoundly positive response of the entire nation to the nonviolent direct action in Montgomery and elsewhere. Such action exerts immediate social and economic pressure to which the South has no choice but to accommodate itself. The more widespread it becomes, the greater will be its effectiveness as real political action. It is true that direct action has profoundly disturbing effects within a locality. To a large extent, however, the fears roused are modified and ultimately dispelled if the action is nonviolent. In any case, the fact that resistance to injustice is bound to have a disturbing effect cannot be the basis for inaction and submission. We therefore urge the Negro people to extend their nonviolent protest against segregation now. Action patterned after Montgomery and Tallahassee is a truly total vote of infinitely greater importance than any ballot cast in November. Insofar as the Negro retains the nonviolent approach, he will be able to win white sympathy and frustrate the aims of the White Citizens Council. Nothing is so terrifying to white supremacists as the fear that if Negroes gain power, they will visit upon them their former master's violence and oppression similar to that employed by whites against Negroes in the past. Nothing can so thoroughly disarm their terror as the determined adherence of Negroes to nonviolence. The initial reaction of the whites will be one of distrust since deceit and violence formed a larger part of their experience of intergroup relations. But in time, the fact that Negroes have eschewed retaliation of this nature will be borne in upon them. This will not be easy. The councils dimly recognize this coercive psychological power of nonviolence and will be bent on inciting violence from Negroes. Should they succeed, the Negroes will lose their moral initiative. Liberals will become even more frightened and inactive, and a deeper wedge will be driven between white and black workers. If, on the other hand, despite this provocation, the Negro holds fast to the spirit of Montgomery, he will be able to work with white workers and farmers to create a new political force for social progress. All this does not mean that the Negro can or should struggle alone to achieve freedom for himself. The mass of Negroes are farmers or workers, and their interests are fundamentally allied to those of other farmers and workers. The role of the Negro is unique only in that his especially demeaned position and consequently unprecedented new drive for dignity and self-respect lend him a momentum and initiative lacked by Southern white workers. The Negro is, therefore, now pivotal to the resolution of the major problems confronting all classes in the South. The historical facts of segregation shed a flood of light upon the basic nature of the relationship of black and white labor in the South. 
during the period of reconstruction following the Civil War, Negro and white workers, many of them illiterate, worked together effectively in Southern legislatures for progressive legislation of all sorts, such as the present laws providing for free universal education in North Carolina. Not until 1876 did Northern and Southern capital realize the threat such a progressive union of black and white workers offered to its own interests. At that time, it conspired to destroy this unity by the resurrection of the doctrine of white supremacy. From 1880 to 1890, such efforts met with small success. Although from this period dates the transformation of the remnants of the Confederate underground into the Ku Klux Klan. In 1890, prejudice was legislated in the form of segregation laws. Jim Crow laws date primarily from the period between 1890 and the First World War. This stratagem on the part of Northern and Southern capital has continued till today. When the Industrial Revolution began to accelerate in 1940, the American labor movement, primarily concerned with wages and hours, faced a dilemma. On the one hand, it could attempt to oppose the powerful capitalist-inspired program of segregation by organizing white and Negro labor into integrated unions. On the other, it could more expediently organize separate white and Negro locals and sacrifice the strength of true solidarity. Where Negroes were brought into the factories, labor chose the latter course, and for a number of years, this system seemed to work. Today, however, organized labor faces a quite different situation. The white citizens' councils, the KKK in gray flannel suits, are well aware that organized labor is part and parcel of the racial and economic progressive forces they loathe. The council's prejudice against Negroes, Catholics, and Jews is superficial in comparison with their main objective, to castrate the labor movement by preventing a coalition of Negro and white workers. The forces behind the councils have thrived by keeping white workers poor and Negro workers poorer, and as in the past, their prime device against any strong union of laborers is to fan the flames of religious and racial intolerance. This situation is as critical for all American labor as it is for the Negro. For labor now to sidestep the Southern racial issue means suicide. Already in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia, local labor leaders, influenced by the white citizens' councils, are urging unions to withdraw from the AFL-CIO. They want to create a Southern labor organization of lily white, strictly segregated company unions. As the South becomes more and more an industrial center, it takes little imagination to see how an unorganized, company unionized South would undermine the unions throughout the whole nation. American labor is as yet oblivious to this danger or is unwilling to face it. But enlightened American workers must bring their unions to understand that the time for equivocation is past. Sooner or later, labor will have to accept the Negro as a first-class citizen. 
to attempt now to organize white workers in a position of superiority or privilege is to play into the hands of the white citizens' councils by pushing Negroes, one-fifth of the labor force, into the position of potential scabs. But when the unions finally embrace the Negro, they can no longer expect to limit their attention to wages and hours. The effort to organize Negro and white workers on a basis of equality in the face of political splintering and racial upheaval will make it imperative for labor as it deals with these issues to evolve a political philosophy. The combination of Southern white farmers, workers, and Negroes in a political alliance, which will also draw in labor and progressive elements from the rest of the country, will create a new labor market. Labor then will no longer be obliged to seek favors from existing political groups and in exchange for them or in fear of losing them, support an adventurist and warlike foreign policy. Negro and white workers face essentially the same dilemmas and inevitably, if they are intelligent, experience the same frustration in trying to find a party worth voting for. The Negro is nevertheless in one respect in a unique position. For him, disenfranchised as he now is for the most part, the mere act of casting his ballot constitutes in a sense a revolutionary achievement. It is imperative for him to register as widely as possible, pay his poll tax where necessary, and vote. The fight for the ballot is integral to the revolt against oppression. Yet the bitter resentment of the Negroes at the handling of the civil rights issue, both at Chicago and at San Francisco, and their marking time in deciding for whom to vote, clearly indicate that no real and satisfactory choice is open to them. There is something fantastically unreal and at the same time tragic about fighting desperately at the risk of one's livelihood or even life itself to gain admission to a polling booth in a typical southern state and then having to use this hard-won achievement to indicate a choice between the present Democratic and the present Republican Party. It would be presumptuous for us to attempt to make specific suggestions, much less to lay down directions for Negro voters. The situation will inevitably remain profoundly unsatisfactory until basic attitudes on the race question are altered and labor is effectively organized. What is clear in the meantime is that the paramount object when making up one's mind how to vote must be to make the vote instrumental in the disruption of the solid South. In some areas, Negroes will probably decide that the reconstitution of Southern politics will be best served by voting Republican, in others by voting Democratic. In areas where there is a sizable Negro population, it has been suggested that a write-in vote might be cast for a Negro candidate, such as Martin Luther King Jr. In all cases, the Negro vote should be designed as effectively as possible to confuse the old guard and to diminish and rapidly destroy its power. When the Negro comes back from the polls, he must face problems that cannot be solved by voting. Northern Negroes have had the right to vote for years without gaining economic or social equality. The same is true of most working men, regardless of their color. 
more often than not, reliance on voting and periodic elections has sidetracked them from using the more powerful weapons of direct action. Labor, both white and Negro, must address itself to the real economic issues by organizing fully integrated locals, aiding the struggle for racial equality in Montgomery, Tallahassee, and elsewhere, supporting the victims of economic boycott in Mississippi and South Carolina, fighting the Smith Act and similar repressive measures, and opposing restrictive immigration laws by engaging in the continuous struggle for justice and human welfare, workers will gain a realistic political education and will cast the only ballot worth casting, the daily ballot for freedom for all. <laughs>